listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti Podcast. The mod, not to be mistaken for John Candy's half-man, half-dog character from 1987 Spaceballs, is a mouthpiece for Mid-Atlantic creatives. I'm your host, Brad Cox, the Mog Father, a name affectionately coined and given to me by conversations with Rich Bennett, and I'm here to let you into the Mog House. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on the Mog. The Mog, podcasting from Underground Studios, aims to be an all-inclusive, all-things-creative networking megaphone, and with the amount of talent we have in our own backyard, I don't know that we'll ever have a shortage of good content and rich stories to tell. Everyone has a story that's uniquely their own, and it's the Mog's mission to unearth it. The Mouthful Graffiti Podcast started as a seed and couldn't have grown without the support of those who sponsored us along the way. We'd like to thank Musicland, Reb Records, Capricos Books, The Gone But Never Forgotten Black-Eyed Susie's, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Double Groove Brewing, and the Baltimore Decal Gal. Don't forget to use discount code MOGPOD for a 10% discount at Capricos Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing some fresh new wax at Reb Records, followed by a delicious lunch at Vagabond Sandwich Company. While you're in town, swing by Musicland for the latest in gear and rentals or a relaxing pint at Double Groove Brewing. Rumors, a Fleetwood Mac tribute is coming to the APG FCU Arena on June 30th. Fans from across the nation claim that Rumors is the band to see if you're looking for an authentic recreation of live Fleetwood Mac shows. Tickets are available at HartfordEvents.com. Just announced, the Phoenix Festival Theater is bringing the sound of music to Hartford Community College's Amos Center this September. Directed by Kathy Concord, this musical classic set in the 1930s is sure to be a treat for Hartford County and beyond. For tickets, visit HartfordEvents.com. Finally, Voyage, the ultimate journey tribute band, is set to touch down in Bel Air, Maryland on September 9th at 8 p.m. at the APG FCU Arena. Tickets are starting at $25. Visit HartfordEvents.com. Today on the show, I'm sitting down with local singer-songwriter Mike Smith. I'm hell-bent on giving Mike Smith his due in this episode and possibly making him blush beneath his perfectly sculpted salt-and-pepper beard. Though his modesty is like a warm handshake on a cold winter's afternoon in a local park or akin to grandma's home-cooked meatballs, his music is a storyboard that covers a lot of the past, present, and possibly future of the local music scene. And it's an untold chronicle that deserves to be heard. As someone who was shined brightly in his day and now enjoys passing the limelight to a new generation who wishes to kiss the sun, I can say with 100% certainty that I understand what makes Mike Smith tick. From the rip-offs to his paper hearts, Mike Smith has done it all from punk rock to country, and I couldn't be happier to have him on the show. Join me in welcoming Mr. Smith to the Gosh Darn Mog. Mike Smith, welcome to the Mouthful of Graffiti Podcast. It took us six months, but here you are. Is this your first podcast? Yes, it is. In fact, uh, up until oh maybe a year ago, I didn't know what a podcast was. Really? Yes. You never listened to him. Never watched like the Joe you know, Rogan experience. I, I, yours was kind of one of the first. The introduction to yeah, it, pretty much. So, so, where are you coming from this fine Seattle morning? As you know, it's been raining every day of summer, and it's going to just continue raining until next Friday. Where are you coming from? Uh, from uh, really just a few miles from here. We're we talking Faust and Forest Hill. No, right downtown Bel Air. In fact, if the weather had been nicer today, I could have walked. The apartment's right there on Main Street? We're or? Right, we're right behind the fire department. In, I tell okay. people that I live in Archie Bunker's house. It's a <laughs> it's a 50s duplex. That's fantastic. Yes. yes. Now, are you a, do you like the rain? Some people do like the rain. Um, are you a fall, winter, spring, summer person? Like, what is it that you like in terms of weather? 
Uh, rain, no, please, enough. We're done. I know grass, that's all fine. In fact, rain is the enemy because, of course, then you have to cut the grass. Right. Uh, but uh, also, unfortunately, uh, where our house is situated, it's kind of a natural basin and uh, it floods. Uh, during, oh, especially during, flood during heavy rain. Yes. And I have, I have, yeah. I have two sump pumps. I have a standby generator. I have a water activated sump pump. I've been fighting this battle now for 20, almost 30 years. So uh, rain, yes, can go away. But in terms of seasons, uh, I'm kind of a, a fall guy. When you look at the music from Seattle, it kind of makes sense. You know, everything's yeah. in minor keys. Those people were kind of down, yeah, right? Down. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, fall is, you know, it's the, it really is the season when things come to an end. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the slow uh, uh, study decline, I suppose, speaks to me thematically now as I advance in age. So we'll get into your background extensively, but is it fair to say that you are now embarking on your own genre that we could call punk tree? <laughs> if, if it were, if I had a band, perhaps. Okay. Uh, but this is, uh, as conceived, is going to be very, very stripped down, uh, just solo acoustic guitar. I love it. The uh, influence, uh, really, that kind of pointed me in that direction was uh, Springsteen's Nebraska. Really? Which uh, he recorded on a, uh, I think it was a four-track T-Act. And Back to the beginning. Cassette tape, yeah. And this was this was all just very stripped down so stuff, you, very stark. And you're you're an older guy, so you remember like the old Fostech cassette tape. That was fun, wasn't it? No, it was awful. <laughs> no, they weren't a lot of fun, but yeah. Uh, so this is very, very stripped down. It probably has more in common with, uh, I guess, kind of some of John Prine's early stuff or uh, really, if you listen to Hank Williams' records, there's no drums on those records. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, the, the rhythm is being kept on, you know, the guitar and sometimes the back of the guitar. But so, yeah, no, no band in this. Uh, the My punk days are long gone. Maybe, maybe. I mean, look at Steve Jones. He's still out there now with Generation Sex. Uh, you got Paul Cook in there. Yeah, I just Billy saw something Idol. With, with Jones, too. I don't know what – I guess that's what he was doing. Steve Jones? Yeah, yeah. He's at Glastonbury today, uh, the Glastonbury <laughs> Festival. Naturally, <laughs> right? Well – Probably going to talk about it we later, are. but that Scottish radio station was talking about Glastonbury yesterday. Right, thought, with oh, Guns yeah. N' Roses headline. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that's kind of a weird thing. But who backed out? There was somebody that backed out that made that happen. Yeah, I, it was kind of really wasn't really following it until I heard yesterday that it was still happening. I thought that was something that went away years ago. Yeah. Well, let me read the news real quick and then we'll get right into it. Right on. Events is bringing the Anoxia CD release party to the Baltimore Soundstage on July 8th with Veterans, 51 Peg, Rise Among Rivals, I'm going to butcher this, but Amathia and Distance to Dawn. Rapola Entertainment has Any Given Sin with special guests, Awake at Last, A Light Divided, Rise Among Rivals, Cole, another band that's been around for a really long time, and After the Broken, coming to the Record Theater on August 19th, and Feed the Scene has Bad Cop, Bad Cop, The Homeless Gospel Choir, Callie Massey and Pity Party coming to the Metro Gallery. So that's got to kind of put you in your punk rock feels yeah. on September 3rd. Many times. And finally, be the first to message me the word punk tree to win a $25 gift card to the Baltimore Decal Gal. So we're going to start the mouthful graffiti with just some fun questions to loosen you up, Mike. Very good. All right. So we <laughs> talked briefly. You know, it's kind of weird. We had a chance encounter. I, I meant to ask this actually before, but you and I never met, but yet we had bands running during the same period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. How's that possible? You know, they, you know, they say that, you know, Baltimore's, you know, America's, you know, biggest small town or smallest big town. You want to look at it, but yeah, I don't know. A couple of people like that, a guy I know named Keith Hughes was playing in a band back then too, as a bass player. And I knew him from my associations in the comic book world, but I had no idea he was, you know, out there at the same time we were doing the thing with the ripoffs. It's strange. We're going to get into the ripoffs, but what was the uh, kind of the period of time for the ripoffs basically? 
it got started right after um, uh, September 11th uh, in 2001. 2001 to 2011, so a good 10 yep. years. Yep. But what were you doing even prior to that? I, w- I had been off my food uh, musically for uh, quite a long time at okay. that point. The last band I played in, these are party bands back in the 80s. Yeah. And that I- all kind of knocked off back in like the early mid-90s. Um, yeah. And so before that, really, I was listening to a lot of music. I was still playing occasionally, but really nothing. Well, one of the things I remember from our conversation at, I guess it was Black Eyed Susie's at the yeah. time, was that you are a big punk rock guy and we talked about the Pistols. So was Sid Vicious or Johnny Rotten the Sex Pistols, <laughs> in your opinion? Oh, that's so terribly fat. It was all of them. Yeah. It was all of them. I mean, you couldn't. You it couldn't, was Malcolm as well, yeah, you, for yeah, sure. And, and McLaren, you couldn't, you, you couldn't subtract anybody and have the same group. They're sort of the Beatles of punk rock, right? I mean, yeah. that, each, each personality was a contributor musically, you know. I think Glenn got a raw shake in the deal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what a terrible thing. It's like they, when they say, if you want to give Ringo less, that's up to you. You know, the funny thing about it is Matlock's probably the most talented. At, you know, he still tours. I, I, I think Steve Jones got better, but he wasn't very good at the time. Yeah, wasn't there a story that somebody handed him a guitar? And he went, hey, what's this then? Right. You know, something like that. <laughs> Why do we have to learn how to play instruments? <laughs> that, that Actually, there's a new series well, that just came days, out. Man. It's called uh, Pistol. Well, Johnny Rodden hates it because he hates everything, but uh, it's a really cool series. So if you haven't checked that out, check it out. Never so heard of it. Yeah, sounds you great. You would say it was all of them. But if you had to pick like the the predominant front man character, was it Sid Vicious or Johnny Rodden to you? I've, I've always loved Johnny Rodden. I have too. <laughs> you know. I love the fact that he has an opinion on everything, <laughs> yes. even if it's completely wrong. Yes, and, and he's not afraid to speak his mind. So Not at all. Yes. You ever see him on like Pierce Morgan? I, yeah, I, I think I saw him. Yeah, I think that was either that or on um, – Oh, what's the other guy that does a talk show over there, chat show over there, big one at night. It's like the Tonight Show over there. Oh, God. I can't think of his name right now. It's not John Oliver, right? No, no. Anyway, no, no, I hadn't (laughs) – but he is a lot of fun. Now, has Maddie turned you on to any new bands from her generation that could be maybe classified as punk rock, like maybe like an Arctic Monkeys, a Peach Pit? Uh, Yeah, uh, I think – the name of those guys, uh, Gerard Way. Gerard Way? Yeah, what was that? Oh, yeah, My Chemical Romance. My Chemical Romance. Yeah. Yeah, there there was one song I think uh, it was called Teenagers. Yeah, I thought okay, it's a great song. I mean this this could have been written by the Who. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, I really, most of the other stuff uh, was a little too arch for me, I guess. But I wasn't the I'm not the audience for yeah. it, you know. And oh yeah, Matt, she uh, we she went to see a, a band called they were huge called Twenty One Pilots. Yeah, they were good. And it was a, it yeah. was at Merryweather, and uh, we uh, my wife and I took Maddie and a friend. I've been to Merriweather. I can't count how many times I've been to Merriweather. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, what, what is going to be like half the lawn or maybe just the pavilion? Right. It was it was all the way back up the hill and down by where the you know, the beer garden they was. They were peeking. I've never seen so many people. I haven't seen that many people out there for the Grateful Dead. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And it the music did not speak to me on any level, but they had that audience from the first note and they never let it up. They were doing something right because yeah. everybody that was there specifically to see them was totally engaged. So that was extremely impressive. You brought up Gerard Way. One of the things that's kind of interesting is I feel like the emo scene is a lot like the glam scene in the sense that just by definition, it kind of gets panned. But there was a lot of really good bands happening. Absolutely. The Used was a great band. That was one that I really liked. And there was some great 80s hair bands, too. I think that's a it, that makes sense. It's a good analogy because, you know, the glam bands, people thought it was just it was just makeup and, and you know, Mark Boland strutting around in a peacock feather and all that sort of thing. There's some really great stuff. But and Mark really, the Hoople, yeah. I think, counted. And that was great stuff. Exactly. And a lot of that stuff came from like like Bowie, Hanoi Rocks. Like it wasn't it didn't become as bloated and gross 
like poison <laughs> tough and everything that followed as it I actually like some of those be honest yeah, with I you. do too but you know what I mean like it I just Cinderella was fantastic that's actually Tom Kiefer Tom Kiefer man that was one of my first cassettes I always talk about night songs and he was the guy and I tried to find something else like Cinderella and I ended up finding Zeppelin 3 yeah. <laughs> immigrant song comes barreling in I'm like yes <laughs> And then the band that it really pulled it all together for me was Guns N' Roses because it was like the amalgamation of just that intensity and anger, but there was talent there too. Oh yeah, no, no, that well, that was. I remember the first time I heard Sweet Child of Mine on uh, ninety-eight Rock. Uh, I was sitting, I was in the back of somebody's Mustang. A bunch of us were driving around. Uh, I think I was uh, drinking a, a Miller High Life at the time. Yes, and of heard, course. And you hear that that the that, champagne you know, of beers, that beginning lick, and nothing. Nothing that we had heard from, you know, 1980. It just, it's, all that stuff suddenly disappeared. Of course, then a few years later, all that stuff disappeared when, you know, Nirvana exploded. But uh, it was it was amazing. Yeah. It, was like, it, was, it was like Aerosmith, but cooler and certainly younger. Yeah. So, yeah, I love those guys. Very, so very aggressive. Times. Total sidebar. But your daughter wanted you to come onto this show oh, at, at a point. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And what does she think of your music? Because my daughter, I don't think, would ever tell me. I don't, I mean, I think she tolerates it. Right. Uh, you know, right. I did my, you know, sort of do your best. I but I think she obviously loves way. and respects it because you're here and she wanted you here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she grew up listening to everything that was coming out of my basement, which was which was basically the Beatles, the Who, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, the Birds, uh, you know, the Clash, the Pistols, MC5, right. you know, whatever. I heard all of that, just said, yeah, that's really not for me. That's my dad's music. Yeah. And uh, she found kind of found her own way. Well, we completely lost our way in the fun questions here. So okay. Batman or Robin? Batman. Yeah, Robin oh. kind of really they really didn't need Robin. I, Robin kind of just sort of got in the way. He made yeah. the the television adaptation in the 70s really cool. Was it the 70s? Yeah, 60s, but yeah. 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 Burt Ward is as Robin. Oh, I loved it as a kid. Fantastic. Uh, it was an awesome show. Oh, yes. The original Hawk was awesome. Yes. With the, Bruce Banner or Lou Ferrigno, yeah, yeah, yes, fantastic stuff. Yes, those are the days. Yeah, man. So, favorite Sunday morning cartoon or Saturday morning cartoon? Always, my favorites were always the the Warner Brothers. So Warner that was Brothers. that was the Looney Tunes stuff that yeah. came on. You know, uh, on with the show. This is it. That, uh, right. You know, in the well, mid mid seventies, I say. All right. Yeah, I love that stuff. My dad was a huge fan. And uh, he loved Foghorn Leghorn. Oh, yeah, man. Yosemite Sam. He loved watching that. That's a, one thing that we always had in common for those silly cartoons. Who was the little Marvin the Martian? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really yeah, liked yeah. him. <laughs> I, I loved I, I loved uh, Roadrunner so much that I made like uh, these like wooden Roadrunner figurines oh, at a cool. point. Because my grandfather used to make those whirly birds on the front lawn. And that was my way of making whirly birds. I couldn't make whirly birds. So I made these like little yeah, roadrunners. Road yeah. Very good. Yeah. I asked this on the last show, but it's a great question. Which Breakfast Club character did you most identify with? The criminal, the prom queen, the freak, the jock, the nerd, the janitor, or the principal? Who was the who was the guy that was the heavy? Was he was he supposed to be the principal or was yeah. he just the monitor? Yeah, I guess uh back then I don't know what I would have said. Now I say I identify with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's this guy that you know has maybe been teaching for 30 years, whatever. Right. He's seen it all, done it all, and then on a Saturday he's got to go in and deal with this crap. I mean, you gotta <laughs> right. really feel for the poor guy. Yeah, you know, and you never really thought about it like that until you said it, but yeah. I, you know, it was just terrible. You know, these it, kids turned on me. Yeah, yes. 
They didn't change. You changed. And then he, he, something was happening, and he was—I think he was using the bathroom when he came out, and some of the toilet paper was hanging <laughs> down from the back. Now that was, yeah, it was great. <laughs> All right, so let's get into your background. That's why we're here. We're here to talk about your music. Oh dear. Take me from the earliest years of your musical life. What were the first albums or musicians you were introduced to that made you think, "Yeah, I, I want to do this." Okay, good one. It started for me probably when I was. Uh, uh, 10 or 11. And uh, my, my sister had been uh, living away and came back home to live with us for a while. And she brought a record collection with her. And uh, in that collection were um, uh, Roy Orbison's greatest hits, uh, at least one or two Beach Boys albums, the first uh, Farewell to the First Golden Decade uh, by the Mamas and Papas. I don't know if there's a Beatles record in there or not. That might have come a year or two later. But that really started for me. And so the first records that I sought out with money f uh, from my allowance uh, were Beach Boys albums. Okay. Yep. I really, really love them. Um, yeah, that, that what I said would be around 1976 or so, something like that. Uh, the Big Bang really then happened for me a few years later, though, uh, with the Beatles. Okay. That changed everything. That was like the, the, the light switch moment that for you. It just changed everything. What no, was I, it about the Beatles? I, it, it just felt like anything was possible. Yeah. You could, you, could, you, 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 could, you could make a song about anything if you were good enough. Are you talking like mid-career Beatles, early career, or when they started getting into like the Sgt. Pepper's, Robert Soul? Oh, yeah, good kind of question. Um, the, the, the two albums that were on loan to me for about five years from a neighbor, and I reluctantly gave them back after I graduated from high school, right. uh, was um, um, Rubber Soul and Revolver. Okay. And so that, you know, help Rubber Soul Revolver, that's sort of that holy trinity of the mid-period when they were, nobody would ever be cooler, nobody would ever be better. It was just spectacular. Everything worked. Yeah. Uh, so those were the first few that I had, but eventually uh, I had to hear it all. And that, I, I, I tell people that John in particular is a favorite. And um, he he's kind an of- amazing songwriter. Just, there was just so much going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, he kind of kicked the door open for me. Pete Townsend opened my eyes and Bob Dylan saved my life. Okay. That's, it's a, there's a lot going on in between all of those things. So with Bob Dylan, it would have been more like the lyrics that were really touching with you. Just about just about everything, but especially some of his 70s stuff, uh, particularly uh, Blood on the Tracks. And you can hear a know. little uh, of Bob Dylan in Straight from the Bottle, I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. The other thing, though, uh, I also had my dad's records, and he had kind of two collections. He had uh, gospel music and Hank Williams. Okay. <laughs> Is that... The, uh, so the later part of your career, you're, you're, it's for your dad. It certainly started there yeah. because you know, some times my dad might have a couple too many and he'd put records on. He loved to listen to music. He could play too. He played, he uh, played harmonica. He taught me how to play harmonica. Okay. He uh, played the organ, played it by you. played the harmonica. I, I, yeah, sort of, <laughs> a little bit. So do you have like the thing around your neck that- Yeah, no, I do have one, but I don't want to ever see anybody using those. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people do and I don't want to offend anybody. Sure. But if I walk into someplace and somebody's got that on, I just know that I'm not going to like it. I okay. just, for some reason, it just, it, you know, it's kind of that, I bought my love a flower that had no thorn. <laughs> that kind of old <laughs> right. 60s folk. The call and response. Kind uh, yeah, of, yeah, I don't know. Just, it, it calls up all kinds of unpleasant connotations, I guess. Right, right. But yeah, yeah. The uh, So that so he'd listen to either gospel music or he'd listen to um, the MGM uh, compilation of Hank Williams' Greatest Hits. And so that stuff really sunk in at a at a young age. It drove my mom crazy. I think she was not a big country. music What was fan. the music of your mom then? Like, what oh, was she really into the gospel? No, or? no. Well, she liked gospel music. Yeah, she yeah. really did. But she came uh, from a, a different background. Her dad was an operatic tenor that <clears throat> I think performed in Italy before they emigrated. Uh, and she liked big band music. And uh, she, my yeah. mom was my my dad hated rock and roll, but my mom loved it. 
Yeah. She absolutely loved it. That's weird that your dad didn't connect with rock and roll. It just seems like- Well, I, I should point out that they were from the World War II generation. Okay. My, my dad was born in 1923. Okay. He was a World War II vet, Navy vet, tough as nails. I mean, he would, he would eat the fat off the steak first and then eat the steak. If we go out to dinner and he needed to get cigarettes and all they had in the machine were filtered cigarettes, he'd tear the filters off and smoke them. He was one of those kind of guys. Okay. He was, he was tough as nails, hard gold. But uh, he like he really loved country music. I think when you start making music, you're you're trying to find out who you are. But there is a point, I think, yeah, point. also more on a subconscious level, where you try to find out who your parents were because they're part of you. That's fifty fifty. Yeah, it's man. in there. You can't you can't erase it, expunge it, or anything. It's in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I started realizing, you know, like you were saying, you were starting to make this like this country music. I was like, well, maybe that is a nod, whether you subconsciously realize it or not. To your father? No, absolutely. I really hadn't really thought of it that way, but I, I'm I'm almost certain that's true. Yeah, I think he probably would have liked some of this stuff. I don't think he would have liked anything else I did. Right. He's we've, he's been gone for a few years now. Are any of these bands still influences to you today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yep. What was I listening to last night? I was listening to a little bit of Neil Young. Okay. Uh, a, a, a guy named Gary Stewart. You've never heard Gary Stewart's late '70s country rock? I have not. Yeah. Spectacular. I mean, it's heady stuff. He was absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, uh, he drank himself into an early grave. It seems to happen in country music. Um, right. And uh, that was- I We all the, could have done it at one point or another, yes. I think. <laughs> yes. There, but for the grace of God, go we. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, Lisa, I remember her fishing me out. I would get drunk and then I would pass out in the bathtub, you know? That's just what I did. Because, not a bad place to pass out. Because well, you, you get about the spins, it? right? So if you're laying in the tub on your back, you don't have the spins and the hot water kind of like soothes you. There was one time where she was fishing me out and there was the water was above me and it was scary. Yeah, that, that could have gone the other because way. Because a lot of times I would just pass out in the tub and she'd wake up in the morning and that could have been Holy it. Holy smokes. Yeah. Scary stuff. Uh, yes. All right, so we we know you played the harmonica. Yes. Your dad taught you the harmonica. Yes. What are some of the other instruments? Was it the piano? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, I played the trombone. The trombone? Yeah, I did in fourth grade. You just don't see a lot of trombone in rock and roll. That's in, a shame. Yeah, we're missing out. We're really missing out. <laughs> we really out. are missing out. Uh, yeah, I did. I, you know, it was in elementary school, and they had a band. And uh, my parents used to watch, talking about the kind of music they liked, they always watched Lawrence Welk. Okay. You know, the Lawrence Welk show was a big band of music and, you know, it was uh, it was up for a certain generation. Let's put it that way. And uh, I always thought that the trombone looked kind of neat. You got this thing that goes back and forth and it makes a honking sound yeah. and it's a shiny thing. So you ha everybody had to be in band. Great for jazz. And, yeah. There you go. And I think I took maybe four or five lessons. I was absolutely terrible at it. And I think they ended up taking it to a pawn shop or something to get rid of it. <laughs> I don't remember what happened to it, but I, I briefly played Now, the were trombone. you really terrible at it or are you just saying you were terrible? I was awful. Okay. I had no idea what I was doing. There was this thing where you... The slide would go out to the bell, which is you know the, the bottom end of the thing right. where the sound comes out, and you'd have you'd have these finger positions that would show you where the note would be because there's not keys on it, obviously. So right. you you have to sort of estimate, and that helped you estimate. I had no idea what was going on. I'm really uncoordinated. It yeah. just didn't work. It, I felt bad for my parents, but I think they made maybe fifty bucks back off of it or something. So, so. you settled into the guitar. Eventually, yes. Okay. When, when did that happen? Uh, um, that was when that was when we uh, moved from Pennsylvania uh, down here to Bel Air in 1977. Okay, I was just born. Mere lad. Mere <laughs> lad. Um, and the, our neighbors uh, were uh, old folkies from okay. the 60s. And they had, a, it was a harmony acoustic guitar. My first uh, electric guitar was a harmony. Uh, they were, I mean, what a pile of crap. It was great. But the thing about it was you got those things in, in, a, you know, in the 60s and the 70s. You would go into, like your dad wanted to get tires at Sears. You could get a guitar and an amp. Yeah. I mean, they had, it was just the strangest thing. They, they were, they were 
they were department stores sold, but they were manufactured by other people, like yeah. other people, I suppose. But it was this harmony, and the the strings were like six inches yeah. above the fretboard. I'm like, how could you need a vice grip to play this thing? Yeah. But I soldiered through it. I fought with it. Uh, calluses and bleeding. And I remember my dad coming in and saying, are you crazy with this thing? I mean, you're going to kill yourself. And I learned the same two or three chords we all learned. And I was really, I, other than that, I didn't do much with it. And I never really took any lessons. Uh, I just kind of eventually picked it up from playing with other people, with friends. But that was, yeah, I was yeah. 11 or 12 years old at that point for the first time. And that was directly because of the Beatles. Absolutely. I wanted to play um, uh, you, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Uh, which so that um, was that was the one. I don't, I don't think I ever did quite learn it. But do you do you play it now? I I, I did learn it eventually. I haven't played Fantastic. it in years. Great song though. But yeah, that was the uh, the, the classic old harmony right over there on Reed Street. Okay. Um, behind the mall. Yeah. Uh, sitting in my room. What is it? Atwood Reed. Yeah, the, uh, the one the one that goes all the Kelly, way. Kelly maybe. Kelly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because Kelly Field. Well, when we when we first moved here, there was still a a, a cow. In the field across Betsy, from the mall. Right, there was no chilies. They were waiting on the no, cow to die. I, I, I ne I'd never really seen anything like that. What an what an honor to that cow. <laughs> they could have they could have offed it and sold the lamb, but they're like, no, she's going to live her life. I assume there are pictures of that somewhere. There's Somebody's got to have it. I mean, that is just we came from we moved from just outside of Harrisburg, which was it was pretty urban and suburban area. Came down here. I mean, this was still. Were you like Camp Hill area? Yeah, was, we. I was in Camp Hill. How do you know about Camp Hill? Because there's a club up there called Galifty's Underground, and that's like one of the uh, places to play out of town. Outstanding. Yeah. Wow. Galifty's Underground was really a weird place because it was like the basement was like Cheers, and the upstairs was like a pizza joint, kind of. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, and so there was like this separation between the stage and this bar that kind of like was raised. Nobody wanted to break that wall of space. So everybody stood up like and drank beers at the bar and there'd be like this huge floor and then there would be the stage where the bands were playing. So every time you got pictures from this place, it looked like nobody was there. So I'd be like, no, you got to wait till the end of the song because then you'll hear them clapping. I swear to God, there were people there. It's like there's a moat around the stage. It was like just that. a black and white checkered floor and it was just always humiliating when people take pictures. Like, oh, it was like one of those memes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I swear to God, there was people there. Where where was it in Camp Hill? It was well, I was I, I don't know Camp Hill very well, but there was like a little shopping mall, shopping plaza. It was a McDonald's, like a little shopping plaza, and it was the very end of the shopping plaza, and you could see the sign Galifties from '83. Uh, okay, all right, yeah. I don't know if I'm making it any better, but yeah, that's a. I know that we actually played a few times in Harrisburg with the Ripoffs at a place called Smalls. I never heard of Smalls. Which was uh, run by a guy named Jamie Pashati, who was just a fantastic uh, promoter and was a real big uh, fan of the band and really kind of brought us along. Yeah, Camp Hill. But then we moved from Camp Hill and uh, down here to, to Bel Air, and, and that's where I landed. And the next door neighbors gave me Beatles albums and a guitar. I mean, how can you go wrong? You can't go wrong. So you would never take credit for this. You're a great vocalist. You're a great singer. You do a great job. And what, that's where very, did that come from? Just what? years of doing it, or did you actually take lessons somewhere? That's very, it was very kind of you to say that. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Do a great job. Uh, I, I I sort of fell into it. Yeah. Um, after our high school band broke up. Uh, the Image. The Im Yes. Did I tell you? I'm I do my research. I'll say you did. The Image. Yes, The Image. Uh, and we were- See we, how much fun this would have been if we were actually drinking pints? <laughs> I, maybe I have to start drinking no, to make it- No, no, no. We're going to behave ourselves. We're going to behave, gonna behave ourselves. My wife will be listening to this. I'm going to behave. Um, <laughs> where were we? Oh, your train. voice. Oh, your voice. singing, yes. Uh, the high school band broke up and we had a lead singer, my friend, my good friend, Luke, 
one of my best buddies. Uh, he was uh, best man at my wedding. Uh, he, as a singer, he was uh, he he had his moments. But the thing was, the girls liked him. He, they just he had that kind of thing. He had the and charisma. Yeah, he, he's very charismatic. I was very. But the voice had to catch up a little bit. Yes, and, I, and Luke, if you're listening to this, I love you. You know that. You know that you, you were on some songs, but he would we would do Billy Idol's he, White Wedding. He well, some don't have the other. They don't have the charisma. They could be a it. great singer, and it's just like nobody wants to watch it. And look at Mick Jagger. Yes, not the greatest singer in no. the world, but he had it. Exactly. He had it. And and in fact, that was that was. So Lou, you had it. That was Luke's. That was his inf- main influence was Mick Jagger. He loved Mick. Yeah. And so he did all that stuff, and he would do the you know the the White Wedding and get the sneer with Billy Idol. This is 1982, oh, yeah. 83, something like that. So that band broke up. People went to college. Uh, I did briefly and then I didn't and I uh, kind of got something started here in 1985 or so. Yeah. 85, 86. And uh, uh, Luke couldn't do it. We, so we didn't have a singer. There was no singer. So, so it was just basically, you can carry a tune. I, you're the guy. I had to do it. I had no interest in doing it. Growing up, my, my influences were mostly songwriters and guitar players. Yeah. And uh, you can hear that with the music you make. But this, but you know, Lennon does it because I think Lennon, John Lennon was probably one of the greatest rock and roll singers that ever lived. I, I don't, I can't, he's other than the founding fathers who invented it. I think he and Paul were probably two of the greatest rock and roll singers ever lived. Spectacular vocalist. But, mo- but John was a rhythm guitar player and that made sense to me. I like yeah. that. Pete Townsend in the who big influence uh, as a lead guitar player. He's unique, but again, he was another just power chord, heavy rhythm guy. And that made sense to me. Singing never occurred to me. Mm. Never once occurred to me until I had to do it. Yeah. Fortunately, we were playing through, Oh God, a uh, hundred watt twin reverb amps and eventually Marshalls. You couldn't hear me anyway. So right. it didn't really make much difference at that point. I think it was kind of the same thing. Like I was a guitar player and a very good one. And I started writing songs and there was nobody that could actually sing. And I was, I wanted to record the music. So I was like, I guess I'll try to sing. I never intended to be a singer. And then it turned out like years later, that's what people know me as. And yeah, yeah. it's like, it's I, d- I was a guitar player. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, it, it's not a, one of my favorite bands, but, you know, Peter Gabriel takes a powder on Genesis and they're wondering, gee, who's going to sing? And Phil Collins says, well, I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, and he's great. Come, and then they're huge. Uh, he was huge. He was so, great. Anyway. So you were talking about your dad coming in the room, your fingers are bleeding. And he's yeah. like, you're going to kill yourself with this <laughs> thing. So were your parents, though, overall supportive of the music you were making? Yes, they were. They're a couple of sweethearts. They really yeah. were. We'd have, Even the punk rock stuff that he wasn't into. Well, still... I'm talking about when I was still living with him. Okay. So through high school. Uh, Did they come to the later shows? No. 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 And that, we didn't want them to. No, no. That would have been too much for them. But and probably the, for you. Yes. Yeah. No, that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been right. But no, they, they, they really were. When we'd have... Uh, when we'd rehearse in high school in the basement and my dad was trying to watch the game upstairs, he had, he put in, they had a, a, a I guess it was like a eighth inch jack for a small little earbud uh, back then and had a long lead on it. And so he could, th- th- he would have to sit closer to the TV plugged in uh, to hear the game while we were, you know, caterwauling in the basement trying to right. rehearse. And that just, you know, that's just the sweetest thing in the world. Right. Because my dad was a tough guy and he didn't like this stuff. But I think my mom was a softening influence and she did. And her uh, point of view was, look, at least we know where they're at. Right. And that's why you we just hear the broom slamming on the floor. Yes. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> right. I think Springsteen at one point said there was, there was no such thing as a Fender guitar or a Gibson guitar. It was always the damn guitar. So <laughs> everything. just to paint the full picture before we move into the rip and sure. then we'll get into Paper Hearts All and right. then we'll get into Mike Smith. 
Did you play any sports in high school? Is there anything maybe that people don't know about Mike Smith? Like, were you a big lacrosse player? Is there something else uh, that we just don't know? <laughs> Good heavens. No, not even close. Okay. I did. I played tennis for four years. Tennis? I did, I did, oh. Well, I was on the tennis team for four years. Okay. That didn't mean I played. In fact, I, I rarely <laughs> right. did. And the reasons for that are well known to any of my friends. And there was a... a, a uh, a girl that I had an absolutely terrible crush on all four years in high school, and she was a very good tennis player. So I was on the tennis team for four years. Okay. If I played a single match, I'm uh, trying to meet a girl. Yep. And uh, she was, uh, <laughs> if she was, we actually became very good friends and we're very close. But, uh, and sadly, she uh, just uh, just passed away. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. sorry to hear that. That was uh, that was that was really quite painful. But uh, yeah, four years yeah, on the, four because years it puts on the tennis team. it makes everything so real, and and still relatively young too. Yeah, that's so. what I mean. But anyway, yeah, that was that's an amusing uh, an amusing period in my life where I was attempting to be athletic. I don't know if you're at this stage in your life. I think you probably are, but I've entered the the stage where if I eat like a greasy meal, <laughs> I wonder if that's the meal that's going to kill me because I don't know the status of my heart or arteries at this point. I have no idea. <laughs> that could be it. So this morning I had like you know bacon, eggs, fried potatoes, and a biscuit. I'm like, oh, outstanding. You know, I don't know if I should run today because I don't know what state. My heart's in at this point. You might want to wait till it all breaks down or, you know, kind of. Right. You can't look inside. (laughs) Great. That's one more thing I have to worry about now. Gee, gee, thanks, Brad. You're welcome. You're welcome. So before we move on to the ripoffs, anything that you want to say about the image? What kind of music was it? Are there band members you want to give a shout out to from 1981 to 1985? You were rocking with the the image. Yes. Yes. Uh, What great bunch of lads. Luke Neeler uh, was a lead vocalist. Uh, Brian Williams uh, played guitar. I played guitar. Um, we had a revolving uh, cast of bass players. Uh, Mike Powers was one As of them. As all bands do. Yes, yes. And our drummer was uh, uh, Kevin Bradley. Uh, and we had we had a lot of fun. It was all covers. We were doing, but we were atypical. A lot of the cover bands in the '80s were doing either top forty music or heavy metal. We didn't do any of it. We did. We covered the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, uh, um, the Clash, uh, Billy Idol. We did a Duran Duran number. We give a nod to the new wave. Okay. And I think that's probably why we were able to get away with it for so long. We never, we were never, we were only paid, I think, two or three times to play, but we played a lot of parties. Yeah. And there were a lot of, and there were girls there. And it was a, you know, all the incentive you need. Win, win, really never did much for me. Nothing really ever happened. A lot of, some of the lads were at a little more successful romantically, perhaps, but uh, it was a very fun time and I remember it very fondly. All right. So let's get into the ripoffs. You've oh, talked about oh, your dear. influences and the ripoffs are not like your influences, really. It was more of a punk rock band. Yes. So yep. how did that come about and how did you fall into punk rock music? Since high school, I'd always had, I'd always had uh, Sex Pistols' first album, the only one. There she is. There it is. Long Matt Rang. Uh, everything by the class. <laughs> it's a great album. Everything by the jam. Yeah. Um, but uh, post punk never did much for me, other than if you like the the damned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of that was okay. I, I love the replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, Tommy Stinson. The fantastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, but there there was always an element of that. But when when we got this thing together, I, as I said, it, it started uh, the germ of the idea began after the terrorist attacks uh, in two thousand and one. My my friend Brian, who was a guitar player in the the Ripoffs, or not the Ripoffs, the Image. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Brian were, Williams. Brian Williams. Yep. We were going back and forth. We we're saying, you know, man, there's, there are guys sitting up there, doing it. They were they were stockbrokers. They're pushing paper, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were probably thinking, you know, one day I'd like to be a PGA champion golfer, or you know, I used to play the the trumpet when I was in college, and I'd like to get into a jazz band again. And there they are. And then 
some jackasses come and wipe them out. And not only does, does it destroy their lives and kills them, obviously, but all those dreams, yeah. now you can't do it. Yeah. And so we looked at each other and said, look, we're not getting any younger. Let's start it up again. And so from that, um, the ripoffs grew. We, uh, we had a couple of different names uh, in the first few years, 2001, 2002, 2003. We played some clubs down in D.C. that were anybody could play, obviously. We mm -hmm. were terrible. <clears throat> but it wasn't punk so much as just we really aren't terribly good players. Mm -hmm. And so it was just easier to thrash away on three chords. And, three chords uh, and the truth? Yeah, basically. So who was all in that group besides Brian Williams? Uh, we, have, we went through a couple of incarnations, but the earliest one uh, was uh, – Brian uh, playing guitar, me mm -hmm. playing guitar and singing. Uh, I think at that point, Brent Davis was playing bass with us. Uh, very, very accomplished bass player. Also a big uh, Brit rock fan. And um, we had, um, oh my God, I can't remember. I, oh, terrible, I can't remember his name. Oh, John Lemons. John Lemons. Yes. So you, you almost a, got John Lennon. Yeah, close. You close, got John close. Lemons. Yeah. You know, it's odd too. He actually looked a little bit like Lennon. Really? Too. Yes, it was strange. He was a really good drummer too. Uh, but the, the, the group that recorded yeah. uh, was uh, me, Brian, a uh, bass player named uh, Jim Grice, and uh, our drummer, uh, the mighty Jay Plummer, uh, who was absolutely spectacular, one of the best drummers I've ever played with. Um, I, think, I think he might still be, be doing something, but it's been quite a few years since I've, I've talked to him. But he was, he was fantastic. And it was, it was also – we were visually kind of interesting – uh, Brian and uh, Jim. Are you sure that Schizo Calypso and the Ripoffs never played together? Yeah, How I've, is it possible? I've looked at old handbills in eight by ten sidebar. All those yeah, clubs, so the I, Mojo. I mean, yeah. Andy Bop was there. That was his place, yeah, right? Yeah, we 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 made basically a debut at the Mojo. With yeah. The, yeah, Andy was there. Yeah, I, I, that's just weird. I don't know. Maybe we did and just didn't, didn't know, know it. Didn't we know weren't it. in the same circles or something. Yeah, I, it, so and it, it's. We, we were kind of flailing away. Yeah. And we hadn't really found any place that really kind of wanted to have us, I guess. Yeah. This was in the days of MySpace. <laughs> and uh, Maddie thinks it's hilarious that I had a MySpace page. Yes, I Rest did. in peace, Tom. Yes, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I saw a band that was kind of doing, not what we were doing, but it was in the same ballpark. They were doing kind of a Faces, Stones, mm -hmm. you know, New York Dolls kind of thing. And that was close to kind of what we were doing. And I just reached out to one of the guys. Uh, his name was Matt Gabs. He was in a band called the Fishnet Stalkers. Okay, and I remember that name. They were one of the they were one of the big, biggest in this. You have to remember this was all this garage rock sort of revolution happened because of the White Stripes, basically. Yeah, they 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 put out "Fell in Love with a Girl" and there's this thrashy guitar, and suddenly it sounds a little bit like the '60s. And it's a simple bit as hell like on the, the drums. Set. Simple, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that's where this was all coming from. And these guys had gone to the top very quickly into a very small pool of bands that were doing that sort of thing. And uh, Matt said, yeah, sure. Why don't you come and open for us at the Talking Head? And so that's what we did. That was, a, that was sort of a big debut for us. And uh, suddenly, I, I don't really know how it happened, but we were kind of, I guess, in the upper third of those groups. Yeah. Uh, and we're getting bookings like crazy. Well, we're going to hear a song called The Girl Next Door. Why, why?
you had sent me a link last night. Yeah, it was uh, the last live show you played at the Auto Bar. I think it was in 2011. Yes. And I hadn't listened to any of the ripoffs at that point yet. I, I Actually, I did like a couple months ago. But what I took from it was it had a very uh, social distortion, Sex Pistols vibe to me. How would you have described the music to people that were interested in the band? Or maybe you were just like, hey, I got this band. Yeah, I uh, I, I didn't say it. Somebody said... Um they were they were like if if uh, they were like a cross between Creedence Clearwater Revival and Blue Cheer. Okay, like it was it was kind of very simple, almost rockabilly kind of structures to yeah. these songs, but uh, they were played at 120 decibels. Yeah, and with a lot of screaming and swearing, and I think that's we were not. I don't think we were ever quite as interesting as a band that would have been a combination of Creedence Clearwater Revival and Blue Cheer, but it's pretty close. And that's what I would have said after kind of digging into it. It's punk, but it's more punk rock and slash rockabilly. Yeah, uh, that it, it just sort so of came than, out that way. Yeah, more so than like your atypical punk rock, yep. stereotypical. I yeah, we, we never quite – They uh, Maddie at the sidebar, who was also – Maddie Pants was just a great advocate for the band, and we really loved him and helped us out a great deal. And I remember one point he came up to me and he said, Mike, you know, I love you guys. I just don't know what to do with you. Yeah. And in a way, I kind of felt like that was a good thing. You know, we didn't really – not that we were better than anybody else, but nobody else quite sounded like us. For better or worse, that's just what we sounded like. Yeah. And we were, I, I started to say, too, we were also somewhat unique visually because uh, Brian, and uh, the guitar player, and Jim on different sides of the stage were both like 6'3". These are some of the tallest guys I've ever known. And, and then there was me out in front. And then we had Jay, our drummer, who was a, a very big black guy. And there were really very few others in the scene. I kind of hate to say that back then, but – and everybody loved Jay. He was a personality. He was a character. He still is. Jay, if you're out there – how you doing? Uh, <laughs> Hello, Jay. We'll tag in. We uh, and just uh, he was you, you couldn't help but fall in love with the guy, and he was a lot of drummers. You know, you, you know what I mean. Some of them are kind of hard to deal with. Sure, yeah. uh, uh, he wasn't. He was just an absolute sweetheart. My drummer Gary Holmes, who's listening to this right now, Gary, you're a pain in the ass. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Actually, he's not. He's one of my good friends. But <laughs> I just wanted oh, to think God. that for a second. And and sometimes we were we did we did some shows in D.C. and uh, and in Philadelphia and we were in bad neighborhoods. Uh, it helped having Jay along. I Fair mean, enough. Uh, this guy who could definitely, if he had to, take care of his business. He was a sweetheart of a guy, but he was a big tough dude too. So so why is none of the music? Why have none of you put this music on Spotify? I couldn't well, find any of it. Yeah, you know when we the only the time we formally re- formally recorded with Dave Nachotsky at okay. Invisible. Yeah, what we did I think it was a four or five song EP. None of us had a clue and a half about publishing, rights management, any of it. We had no idea. And so we just burned a bunch of CDs and gave them away at shows. Yeah. That's it. And no, no, you know, no managers, right? This is all DIY now. Some manager would say, hey, you, you chuckleheads, if you want this to get this out there formally, you got to go through the process. Well, there's a service called DistroKid, and you don't have to feel like uh, – Costs or something to worry about. Yeah, but you it's know, like thirteen to fourteen dollars a year. Did that exist though, like in two thousand and five or six? I'm not sure that it did. I think you still had to go no, through a publisher. But and, I'm saying now you could. Oh yeah, I guess we could. I just have no real impetus to do it for some reason. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I, I you guess, just want to leave it in the past. I know this. This bothers some people who knew us and some people in the band. But I've kind of written most of those songs off. Yeah. I felt like at, at some point I was writing for an audience that I that I thought I had. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody once told me, he said, well, look, what's happening with you, Mike, is there's, you're like Ray Davies in the Kinks. Like they want to hear every song should sound like you really got me. 
And then Ray is writing beautiful ballads like Waterloo Sunset or introspective <laughs> stuff like that's a beautiful song. Yeah. Uh, introspective songs like Sitting in My, If My Friends Could See Me Now, Riding Out Just Like a Film Star. You know, they're thinking that's what Ray wanted to do, but they want, you really got me over and over and over again. And I was kind of in that position. Mm. If I was bringing a song to the band that wasn't, you know, suitably fast, hard, loud, ass kicking, they didn't really want to play it. And that really kind of led to the demise in some ways. And I think they were right, though, because they had signed on for one thing. And when my writing took a turn in a different direction, they really weren't thrilled about it. Yeah, because it really does go into a different direction with Paper Hearts. There's just yes. no doubt about it. Yes, hugely. Now, one of the things I picked up right away when I met you at Black Eyed Susie is that you are very uh, self-deprecating, but yet you're <laughs> very talented. So where do you think that's coming from? Is it just a personality glitch? Like, why do you lead with, and we weren't very good, because then you go back and listen to it. It's like, well, no, it's pretty pretty good. Well, I, I mean, we did have our moments live right. as ripoffs. There were some really, there were some some of the best moments I think I've ever had playing at anywhere, uh, including a, a show where we, uh, this was at the Talking Head. And uh, Brian and I, uh, they, I don't know if you remember, they had the bar there was like, it was two barrels and it was like, I don't know, it was just like planks. Yeah. You know, this was like, this was like an old saloon in the old West when I right. first saw it. And uh, we'd, we'd already kind of established ourselves somewhat. And uh, so uh, we were the, we were the headliners and Brian and I started drinking when we got in there and we didn't know what day it was. <laughs> so we got up there on stage and I think we made it through the first song and then we, I got to the second song and the big intro started. Nothing. I didn't, I didn't know what I was singing, what I was playing. That, it happens. It was just nothing. And our, the bass player at the time, Brent Davis, God bless him, he took off his bass and smashed it to pieces right there on the stage. Nice. And the next day, I apologized to everybody I could apologize to. The promoter, the guy that owned the Oh, bar. he didn't smash it in like a theatrical way. He was mad. But both. Okay. Both. Okay. He, so yeah, he, he was, was feeling yeah, that He anger. was really feeling it. And I, one guy said to me, he said, no, man, you don't get it. The people that were there are never going to forget that. They're never going to forget that that happened. Right. And they're going to remember you. Right. So Some of the worst things that happen end up being the best stories. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's a weird thing. So, but this leads me to a bit no. of a myth that I think a, a lot of us are a trap even that we fall into. And that's that if I make it, they'll find it. They're not going to find it. Nobody's going to find you. You have to be your yeah. own advocate. Yeah. Do you feel like maybe you fell into that trap a little bit where it's like, well – I'm just, I, I just like making music. It's like, well, that's great. Yeah. But if you want other people to hear it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I, I write songs so I can sit in my room and listen to my own stuff. Right. <laughs> right. And exactly. And I'm, and I'm terrible at it. I'm a terrible promoter. Yeah. And you know, the fact of the matter is, is that before, you know, the whole DIY ethic took hold, if you were lucky to have management, they took care of all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you had somebody out there that was their job to do that. And I'm just not, um, I, I kind of have, I have social anxiety. I think I mentioned and, uh, just the, putting myself out there is not really it's just not comfortable for, me. for anybody. I don't think, even if you're really good at it, I don't think it's ever comfortable. But my feeling is that art is very healing, and if if I can write something and it heals me, then there's a good yeah. chance that that song could heal somebody else. And if I don't make any effort to put it out there, why did I receive it? Why did right. I get it? Because right. I, I do feel like the the songs are out there, like Keith Richards said, you kind of pluck them out of the sky, yeah. uh -huh. and they're intended to be received yeah 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 yeah, so. yeah absolutely it's it's you know we're not doing this in a vacuum exactly um and i think uh what was what is nice though is that i'm able that that through the magic of modern technology 
that uh, you know has happened yesterday uh somebody in scotland can play my songs which is you know? awesome you know? we're gonna so, talk about sure. that let's just talk about that now we'll, okay. we'll get right into it how did you get a song to be spinning in scotland i didn't but my wife did uh, okay claudia uh, claudia shout yeah. out to claudia yes, claudia is uh Sort of, uh, well, no, she really is kind of. If I if I have a manager, it it's her. Yeah, definitely. And she, uh, we're 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 both big Anglophiles, and uh, we've talked about kind of half jokingly about retiring to Scotland because it is. Uh, my friend Luke was just over there, um, and it's just it, beautiful. Oh, it's just absolutely stunningly beautiful. I mean, it's remote. You know, you're kind of halfway to the North Pole, <laughs> so right. and a little bit more than that. So it's a little cold, but we're just very fond of it, and. Uh, and so she was goes on to has something on her tablet that scans um, for radio stations that have you know live players. Okay. And she, I think she heard a, a, a station in Stornoway, which is also in Scotland, and this one is in um, um, Two Locks Radio is in West in the Western Highlands, and she just kind of cold called them really with a uh, 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 email to their uh, with their Facebook page. It was uh, just they had they had a, a web page and had an email on it. They got to the program director. And uh, she sent him, uh, I have a Here Now page that has all the one-stop shopping for the songs and all the streaming and everything. Sent him that. And a week later, they put us in touch with the DJ, uh, Ron Cole. And he said, I like your stuff. I'm going to play it tomorrow. That's incredible. I, out of the clear blue sky. I, can I introduce you to some radio contacts? They, sure. I can get you in Canada. Sure. Woody Radio is an indie uh, platform, and they're extremely supportive of local so Outstanding, I'll yeah. introduce you to Gidget Bates. Um, there's a couple other people over there, and yeah, we'll get you spinning. Outstanding, yeah, man. <laughs> so you'll 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 be in uh, Canada and Scotland. That's fine. That's yeah. fine. And, you know, I said my music is going on tour without me. When we were doing the the Paper Hearts project, look, okay, great, everything's published. It's all done. It's all above board. It's ready to go. We've got it streaming. We have CDs. Nobody cares because it's still it's still rock pop music and you need to put it in front of an audience right you just that has that hasn't changed and i couldn't do it i just couldn't do it the thought of doing that wasn't gonna happen yeah it just wasn't gonna happen but and you I, did do some shows with paper hearts at like red records and that was that was just me solo yeah but we were we were talking about the 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 drummer um very good drummer named jimmy lethbridge uh who has uh his his older brother was actually uh, Nils Lofgren's uh, tour manager when Lofgren was in Grin back in the seventies. And Jimmy's been around a long time. I think he he did play on a, Dad, a Danny Gatton song at one point. I think, but Gatton wasn't there. Really good drummer. Uh, we had Jim Grace from the uh, Ripoffs was was playing bass, a fantastic bass player uh, who has he has his own recording studio. He's a absolutely wonderful producer and engineer. Very very creative guy. And uh, we had another guitar player. A guy named Tim, uh, older guy, and uh, he loved this stuff. He says this this reminded him of the music he grew up with in yeah, the sixties. Very Beatles, and they were they were they were willing to do it. it was just, and it, it didn't help that two of those guys lived down in the DC area. And when you have those geographical, yeah, differences, it's just tough. Yeah, and I was the youngest guy in the band. Okay, and Tim, I think, just turned seventy three. So it just it wasn't terribly realistic, but it, nevertheless, it was true that the only way people are going to hear this is if you take it to them. Yeah, I give local bands in general a lot of credit because if you think about it, they're the songwriters, the marketers, the Absolutely. legal team, the business savvy yeah. folks, the producers. They're doing everything and they're doing it well, especially in 2023. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you know, three yeah, years we into grew up this in a mess. time where like the ripoffs probably sounded like Schizo Clips, so very, very local sounding. Yeah. 
You know, you were like recorded tracks were live in the studio. Yes. Like that. That's the take. Yep. All right. Gone. Yep. Um, no, it's it, it, it's commitment to the process. But of course, it helps to be younger, too. Yeah, it does. Uh, really to, to, to do that much. But God bless him for, for getting it out there. All right. Let's move on to Paper Hearts. Then. Sure. And because we got we got to get to you as well. Okay. Of course, this is all you. But talk about that. Uh, Paper Hearts EP that you released in 2019. It's very Beatles infused. Uh, what was the inspiration for that particular project? Because it was such a juxtaposition to the ripoffs. It was. It was. I think what happened there is that grew out of many of the songs that um, that the ripoffs decided not to play that I had written years before, but they were they didn't fit the mold. Yeah. And uh, I really don't have any hard feelings over that with those guys. Not at all. I understand it now. Okay. At the time, I was, a little more, I was a little more upset about it, but it's not what they signed on for. So those songs, um, uh, one of them, the, the final song on the EP, Laurel Hill, was uh, one of the first in that mode that I brought um, to the ripoffs. And it was just too kind of Americana, country-ish, folk something, whatever. It just didn't work for them. I really liked Beth Ann. <laughs> that would that one kind of Lee Rocker the Straight Cats vibe. That that one is that's a, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a good song. That was a lot of and I brought I I'd actually uh, we we had a rehearsal for the recording sessions for the other songs, and I I'd, I'd written that song that morning, and brought it in to the band at that rehearsal that day, and we had it all arranged within. I mean, I, mean, I think I wrote I mean, maybe like fifteen minutes to write that song, and then we recorded it uh, a demo of it in Jim's basement, mm-hmm. and then we're, and then took it onto the record. So that those songs had grown out of the way my writing had changed, and I had a lot of them, and some of them were written, none of them were written really specifically for the project. Now that I think about it, yeah, um, I think that most of those songs dated from 2013, 2014, something like that. What's funny about the Paper Hearts yeah. project is, I saw the CD at Reb Records, and it just coincidentally came out the same time as my buddy Joe Ruggiero's band. He had a solo project called Paper Hearts, and I had his disc. Holy smokes! I thought I, I thought I found him. I walked in. I was like, "Is this like a different?" I took a picture of it and sent it to him. I was like, "Is this a different oh, no. cover?" And he's like, "No, man. What is that?" I was like, "I, I don't know." So it, you, it was just like you guys were like in the same vein. That I, I didn't know that. I, yeah. I remember seeing the. I took a picture when the CD was on the shelf over there because I thought it was funny. Like they were actually selling something that yeah. I made. <laughs> it, it was kind of a wild thing. Okay. And I, I kind of, I and the music was not that. Your your music was definitely more Beatles infused, as his was a little bit more modern pop, but it was still close enough that I was like, "This is wild. These two need to meet each okay, other." That's weird. Paper Hearts could have formed a super group he, of Paper Hearts. Is he local? He is a local guy. He I, he only did like an EP, like four songs, and that was it. In yeah, well, we have that in common. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You'd love him. He's a great bass player, great dude. But oh boy, all right. Yeah. So with the transition, though, and the way you personally saw your identity, because I'm sure you had some identity associated with the ripoffs. Was it weird to go from like, you know, fronting a, a loud rock and roll band to just, you know, strip down three chords in the truth type tunes? Yeah, I, really what it was was a relief because it really made your voice shine. That's to me where it's like, no, he's got a really good voice. Oh, wow. Wow. But it was Paper Hearts that did it. It wasn't the yeah. ripoffs. Nothing against the ripoffs, yeah. but yeah. I, I I never really felt that I was a, I was terribly a, a good rock and roll singer in that sense because you, you know like you got to you got to sing in a high voice, man. You know that's the and right. I, and I, I was starting to lose the top end of my range, which wasn't much to begin with. It was just a relief because it was these it was more natural for me to sing these songs. Yeah, I felt like I was kind of trying to be something in the ripoffs. It really wasn't me. Mm-hmm. 
And now vocally uh, on, on that record, even though I've, I've tried to sing um, If She Doesn't Want You as written, and I've lost like a half step there. I can't, really? Yeah, I can't sing it that high anymore. I have to knock it down. But at the time, it was just much easier and it was just more comfortable. It just felt right. I never, I never felt comfortable doing what I was doing in the ripoffs. I just didn't for whatever reason. We're going to hear a song from the Paper Hearts. What are we going to hear? I think the, uh, I think the lead off track, uh, If She Doesn't Want You. All right, cool. Let's check it out. So what is your songwriting process? I really, it's just pretty nebulous. Um, you just sit down with the acoustic and just kind of it happens? Yeah, you know, uh, or is it like the words first or the chords first? or Sometimes, sometimes either or or both. Like coming out in tandem? Um, I, get, I get ideas when I'm doing mundane things. Yeah, because your brain relaxes. Yeah, I, I'm, when I'm making the bed. Uh, Claudia says I should keep a tape recorder upstairs. I have one in the basement. Yeah. I, I, she sees me running up and down the stairs sing into the thing i just kind of i mean you, you do the same thing where does it come from who knows i, I don't and know it's, but it's like, like in the ether it seems like everybody's process is a little bit different when once i finally get the idea once i know what a song is about usually it comes in, in the form of a title 
Yes. And I can kind of work from there. That when I know the what concept, it's, when yeah. I know what it's about, then it starts to really kind of roll. Um, and there, there are some songs, um, like Beth Ann that, that, uh, um, I wrote a song called, um, always with me that it's a paper heart song, but it wasn't on the EP. And some people really loved it. Some people did not. I'm in that category, but I, I, that I wrote that song in about six minutes. It just everything. It just it all just kind of came out in this one gush. And then I've I've had songs that have fifty seven drafts and are still not finished and probably never will be. Yeah. The, so I guess it's all the same for everybody. You're just kind of plugging away at it and see what happens. But when, I, once I've yeah. got it, then I start going through drafts and thinking about arrangements and and then I have a a system of song sheets that I staple with the current one on top, and the old ones go in my filing system, which is a large trash can. Fair <laughs> enough. So do you think the one with like 56 iterations is maybe just not a song that is worth pursuing? I think at the it, really, point? it needs to go away. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to go away. It's eluding me and it's never going to be right. So. Yeah. I do think that your best songs do come out in five, 10 minutes. I don't know where it comes from. Our most popular song was something I wrote like 10 minutes before we went to Applebee's one night, like back in, I don't know, 17 years ago. I love it. And it was like, what that, that was yeah. the one. <laughs> And it was the one. As a matter of fact, I went in and recorded uh, just an acoustic vocal and the band was going to come in and play drums and bass. We're going to have this full production. And they're like, it's perfect as it is. It's done. It's like, no. (laughs) And I wasn't comfortable at the time. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. If you stop thinking about things, just start doing, maybe you're better off. But it's kind of hard to do, you know, because you you want it to be right. Yeah. um, Well, you're you're going this path now, becoming Mike Smith, the official solo artist. Yes. You are you are becoming 100% yourself. How old are you now? Uh, I've lost uh, 57. So you have so. found yourself at 57 years 57, old. 57, yes. Yes. I think my dad was 57 in 1980. And um, he'd, he'd retire a few years later. But he was still he was still doing the stuff he loved. He loved golf, hunt. Uh, he wasn't doing much fishing then, but uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess you know he still got a few years left that I can maybe you know see what I can get into the ring. Um, the music uh, we're going to hear at the very end. There's a song called "Straight from the Bottle." We've yes. brought it up a couple times. Yes. Is this your favorite track on the record? And how many tracks are going to be on this? I've got a, I've have a pool of 22 songs to to draw from. I've been very oh. I've been very prolific over the past year and a half. You recording all these with Dave? Uh, no, these are I'm be doing these. Uh, this is me self recorded. Good for you. Yeah, yep. uh, very. It's very stripped down. Something I can handle. Uh, there's no overdubs, no double tracking. It, it's basically going to be live performance. That's fantastic. It's a little daunting because you, you, live, it's got to be right. Right. <laughs> so, and you can't fix it. But, uh, but th- this stuff is very simple. It's two minutes thirty, two fifty, maybe. You know, at, at the most. Um, and yeah, that'll be. Uh, I'd like to probably winnow it down from the twenty-two or so I have. I think twelve will make the cut. Um, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I haven't really – writing's done. It's the, a hell of a rehearsal. pool of songs to pull from. It was the past year and a half. They were just uh, – I think I think losing the top end of my range also changed what what I wanted to sing right. in some ways. And this just just felt a, even more natural than the transition from what I did in the rip I can see that. Paper Arts. Uh, and I've – you know, country music has always been around. It was on uh, the radio uh, when we were going on long trips back to western Pennsylvania. My dad always found a country station. Uh, he'd sing along. He had, like I said, his Hank Williams collection. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, we, we, we watched Hee Haw. And my dad <laughs> would say, he said, now look, now there, look at that Roy Clark. Why don't you play guitar like Roy Clark? And I said, well, I'm not Roy Clark. Roy Clark's a virtuoso. 
Right. You know? Why don't you play like Steve Vai? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you can, you can play mandolins and banjos. <laughs> Why don't you play like Roy Clark? Uh, I really can't do that. So country music has always has always been there. And we, we talked about it. There's Your father was into the country yeah, absolutely. music. absolutely. But and you've, also, gone, go, oh, you've gone from social distortion to the Beatles <laughs> to Johnny Cash. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw <laughs> Lee Rocker in there too because the slapback you got on the vocal yeah, has yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. To it's me, it's Sun Studios, right? To me, it's country, but it does have more of a rockabilly flair still. Yeah, some of them, some so. of them do. That one in particular does. Straight from the bottle really does. I was going for a kind of a honky-tonk thing, but I think it is closer to – Almost a, a country rock song in many ways, and, and but that it. was a, a that was actually a, a a demo, one of the first that I'd finished that kind of pointed in that direction. Um, and I was kind of happy the way it came out. I might re- it's a wave file. I might release it just the way it is. So, are there any plans to do a video? Maybe if somebody else was in it. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. if if everything is as organic as it is, it would be really cool just to see you, even if it was you know sitting on like a a, a yeah. porch and playing the song. There was a, I just I read a story. The uh, John Prine's huge influence. I've, I've loved his stuff for years. Uh, there was a great radio show called Hall's Bar and Grill uh-huh. back in the um, late '90s, mid to late '90s, and he played like he played Towns Van Zant and and Guy Clark and John Prine and just all the Jerry Jeff Walker stuff that was kind of was at, when it came out in the early '70s it was outlaw country. It was called progressive country back right. then. It was country, but it was a little more personal. I just loved that stuff. Anyway, John Prine was, I love his stuff. And the picture on his first album is him sitting with his guitar on a hay bale. And the thing is, John Prine was from Chicago. And when he saw that, he's like, I've, I've never even seen a hay bale. <laughs> Why am I sitting on a hay bale? He says, I think they were trying to bring out, I think he said, my inner hick. <laughs> so, wow. So, and it was, it's a great album cover. Certainly suits the material, but it was funny that I've never even seen a hay bale. Well, before we let you go, you brought a sentimental item. Did you want to share that oh. with us today? All right. So what do you got there, Mike? This is a, uh, is that the harmony? <laughs> no, no, this is the harmony. This is a 1975, six, something. Wow. Uh, Gibson dove acoustic guitar. Wow. It's got the dove right there. Yep. Yeah. I, the pick card. This, um, it's a long story, but I've had this uh, longer than any other guitar I've ever owned. I've got I've had it since 1984. So I don't have. I love it. It's beautiful. Yep. And this has been through the wars. It has gone on camping trips. It has. Uh, How's it sound? Um, it sounds like a million bucks. Let's hear it. You'd never know. It's got that really bright kind of yeah. crisp Gibson. It attack. does have that, but you're also capered on the what the yeah, seventh fret right there. That's way up. Uh, it may have been used as an ore at one point. I don't know. An ore? And yeah, I don't, there was, and I mean, there's Nixon. I love it. It, it really went through a lot and uh, it's got the bruises to prove it, but I've written pretty much almost, even uh, the ripoff songs were written on this guitar, on yeah. the acoustic guitar, which kind of tells you. Sounds great. What I'm still doing, you know, going to work for country. I'm not actually using this to record the record with uh, a guy named Mike Forrester has, uh, my, I have an Epiphone J200, really, really nice sounding guitar. And it, it needs a little work right now, so I'm waiting to get that back for I can before I can start tracking. It, it sounds great. You want to play something? I could try. Our two hearts make love for cold. That's what I saw today. My horse go. Yeah, I was one museum. Had him up. Why even bother? I ride that old whiskey train 
smoke a cigar that might help that was really really good thank you all right mike we appreciate you being on the show today uh we're gonna wrap this thing up with straight from the bottle outstanding it was great being here brad i appreciate it straight from the bottle well here we are once again yes you can say we Last night I held you near to me like lovers true. I guess I'll have a few. What's a lovely boy to do? But pull that cork and pour it down me straight from you. I drink it straight from the bottle. Cause in the face. Straight from the bottom, watch heartaches and memories flow past. I am leaving only to answer nature's call. Yes, I guess the old name breaker. 